If you're innovating, creating, or making a difference, this show is for you. Welcome to Over Coffee. I'm Dot Cannon. Here on Over Coffee, we talk with artists and innovators about the process of changing the world in terms of what they do. It's pretty clear that VR can help with pain, but people wonder, well, is that just distraction? And the answer is yes. Distraction's part of what's happening, but it seems like it's more than just distraction. Turns out the brain can sort of fight back. And pain management through virtual reality is just one of the areas which Dr. Brennan Spiegel explores in his book, VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. Dr. Spiegel is the Director of Health Services Research at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles. Since his own introduction to virtual reality in 2014, he has spearheaded some groundbreaking research studies, as well as implementing the use of medical virtual reality in applications that have made Cedars-Sinai Medical Center one of the pioneers of the field. In addition, he's the founder of Cedars-Sinai's annual virtual medicine conference, which takes place every spring and hosts medical professionals from all over the world. And he says that's just the beginning. There are some additional exciting developments on the horizon. The following program is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Please contact a healthcare professional with any health-related questions. Dr. Spiegel, you start your book, VRX, and not too far in, you say that you really were a little bit skeptical about adding virtual reality to your medical practice. How did you make the journey from there to having started one of the largest VR medical programs in the world? Yeah, well, that's right. It's, you know, I'm a Western trained physician, not sort of a mind body guru or, or a psychiatrist for that matter. I'm a gastroenterologist. So it's not a natural thing for me to start using virtual reality as a treatment to augment the therapies I typically use, like medications or procedures. But I learned early on that VR has this uncanny ability to nudge the mind to allow us to experience realities that could be healing and and positive in ways that are hard to imagine if just left to your own devices. And after playing around with it a little bit and trying it with some of my patients and seeing very positive responses, I thought this is something worth exploring, learning more about and, and testing out in our healthcare system. And that's sort of how we get started. You had your mind nudged in several different ways you share in your book with a bunch of different VR experiences. Let's choose one of those and have you tell me about what that was like. Anyone you like? Well, early on in the book, I describe this very unusual out-of-body experience where I found myself in this living room in virtual reality. And I looked out and I could see my legs and I could see my hands from a first person perspective. So I really felt as if I was in this body. And then all of a sudden I detached from my body and started to float up to the ceiling of this room. And as I looked down, I could see the body that I had just vacated. And what was so striking was that I felt like I was still alive and I was moving. But when I looked down at that body, it was motionless and it had, it it was dead. I had died and I had had this out-of-body experience. And what was so intriguing about that is not just the digital parlor trick of 
causing my brain to feel like I had left my body. But the emotional experience of passing away was in a weird way kind of mystical, maybe even spiritual. And in passing in virtual reality, I came to realize that the process of dying doesn't need to be catastrophic. I mean, you know, we're all afraid, most people are appropriately afraid of dying, but the actual process of passing is not necessarily painful or catastrophic. And that's something I learned in that really bizarre sort of existential out-of-body experience. Interestingly enough, as we go on, one of the first areas you cover of four is how VR is getting used for psychological issues, anxiety and phobias. Would you tell me about that, please? Yeah. Well, that's right. There's been a lot of research looking at it for anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress. And you mentioned phobias. Phobias is a good example because it makes a lot of sense. You know, so whether you're afraid of heights or afraid of snakes, whatever the fear is, the traditional therapy is called exposure therapy where you increasingly become exposed to the exact object of your fear. So for example, fear heights, you might start by just sort of imagining being up on a building and then you know, start slowly actually going out onto a building you know, at one story or two stories and eventually working your way up. Or something like a snake, you can't just jump right into having a snake on your lap. You know, you start by kind of seeing a picture of a snake and slowly getting exposed to it. Well, in virtual reality, you can actually mimic these things. You can see and really carefully sort of titrate how intense the experience is. So Professor Skip Rizzo at USC has been doing this with soldiers who have post-traumatic stress after, you know, experiencing battle, particularly in the Middle East. And he's recreated these environments where he can put people in a Humvee and have them drive around and the explosive devices go on and it's really loud, but he exposes it to them bit by bit so that they eventually learn to overcome the physical experience of fear that they get when they're reminded of that environment. It's hard to just imagine that, but in VR, you can mimic it pretty realistically. I hope nobody puts a snake on my lap in VR. <laughs> that would scare yeah. the daylights out of me. Right. What I did not expect, and I read in your book, is that virtual reality can also be used for eating disorders and for making people aware of obesity. How does this work? Right. So it goes back to this idea of virtual embodiment. And what that means is if used correctly, VR can cause us to feel like we're in another body or in the case I described earlier, outside of another body, outside of your own body. And there are a couple steps that go into it. And in the book, I talk about the neuroscience of how the brain can be sort of fooled into believing it is in another person's body. And so with eating disorders, the idea is it's been shown both with anorexia and with obesity that people with these conditions often have an unrealistic portrayal of their own body. So for example, people who are very, very thin, unhealthily thin with anorexia, they believe that their body is larger than it really is objectively. 
And so what's been studied, particularly in Italy by Professor Giuseppe Riva, is an approach where people with, let's say, anorexia are placed in virtual reality and they look down and they see themselves in the mirror and they look down and they see their body, but they're inhabiting a normal sized body. And it sort of reboots their brain a little bit into recognizing that that's what a normal body looks like. And he's shown in actually randomized controlled trials, both for anorexia and obesity, that after having recalibrated your own body size, that people have improvements in their eating behaviors. So it's a pretty amazing example. And I talk a little bit about it in the book. I'm also intrigued at how that's done for folks with obesity and what that would be. What is the neuroscience behind that that would make a patient accept that what they're seeing is actually their body? Yeah. Well, I talk a bit about this in the book too. There's this idea of interoception and extraception. So extraception is the senses sort of on the surface of our body. We see things, we hear things, we feel things, and so on. And those are based upon all these sensors that are scattered around the exterior of our body, monitoring the world around us. But we also have millions and millions of sensors, untold number of sensors within our body that will give us a map of what's happening in our body. And it's, those sensors are usually silent, except when things go out of whack. And it's been shown that people with eating disorders have abnormalities in the way they sense the inside of their body. And they have a map of their body that isn't necessarily realistic. And so the idea is that VR can kind of overcome that interceptive blockade by taking kind of a, a roundabout way of taking those senses and bringing them to the brain without relying upon the interoceptive processes. So there's a bit more to it than that. And I do touch on it in the book, uh, what's known. A lot of this is still unknown, exactly how, I mean, how consciousness works, frankly. But yeah, there's a lot of interesting work. And VR sort of helps us learn about our own consciousness and the way our minds and bodies are connected. If I've understood what you've written in BRX, it sounds like our brains can actually turn off pain at certain times. Did I understand that correctly in reading about yeah. VR and how it dampens pain? That's right. So a lot of people wonder, because in terms of the pain literature, it's pretty clear that VR can help with pain. But people wonder, well, is that just distraction? You know, am I just kind of like smoke and mirrors being distracted from my pain? And the answer is yes. It's part, well, it's not just distraction, but distraction is part of what's happening. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, whatever it takes to get your mind off of pain, but it seems like it's more than just distraction. It turns out the brain can sort of fight back. It, it's not like a hapless recipient of pain signals just sort of lying passively waiting for the body to shoot signals up to it. It has the ability to send signals right back down the spinal cord to close what are called virtual gates. And this is part of what's called the gate theory of pain. And the theory is that we have these virtual gates, virtual meaning it's not an actual swinging fence or something, but there are neurological checkpoints along the spinal cord that can be open or closed. And when the brain is in it trying to be sort of comfortable and relaxed and meditative, it doesn't really have time for pain. 
So in those instances, it will send signals down and close those gates to stop the pain from even coming up in the first place. So this is why you can think about it kind of evolutionarily. You know, 10,000 years ago, if we were really hypervigilant and worried about our survival and anxious, it makes sense that those gates are wide open because we need to be hypersensitive to anything that's happening in our environment, including new pain signals. But if we're kind of relaxing and, and sort of contemplating things, we don't really have time for pain. So VR puts the brain into a state of mind, it's thought, that allows the brain to sort of fight back and block those pain signals. In fact, in your book, you share some stories. And I really enjoyed the one about Harmon Clark. I really enjoyed your own experience with chronic pain. Would you tell me about these and how that applied? Yeah. So I, in the book, I tried to really combine some of the science plus just human stories of virtual reality. And Harmon Clark, you mentioned, is one of the patients who has been really inspirational in sharing his journey with chronic pain. And, you know, he's been very open in talking about how at one point his pain was so severe that he really needed to use opioid medications. And it was very difficult to stay on those because of the side effects associated with them. And we know about this because there's an opioid epidemic in America, and that's been going on now for some time. So he turned to VR as one tool to help him maintain control over his pain and eventually with the help of other tools, get off of opioids. It wasn't necessarily all the VR, but I tell his story in the book and he talks about how powerful VR was, not just in the immediate setting of pain, but also as a teaching tool to allow him to recognize the power that his mind has over his body. And this idea that the mind and the body are separate and distinct is really false. We all learn that at some point in our lives. And it's sort of this old idea from Rene Descartes in the 1600s that the brain is this immaterial thing and the body is material. And the two kind of interact in this mysterious way, but it's all one connected system. And so I talk about that in the book as well. What do we know now about how the mind and body really connect and how does VR kind of tap into that to help with conditions like pain? Why do we not have more widespread use of virtual medicine and virtualists like yourself? What are some of the obstacles? Yeah, well, it's encouraging to see more and more this field growing. This field is now called medical extended reality or MXR for short. And that's a term that the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA came up with. So when regulators like the FDA are looking at this field and naming it, then that's a good sign that things are really starting to happen. At this point, the main limitation is not really science. We have over 5,000 studies now and growing every day, supporting VR for a wide variety of conditions. And we've talked about a few today. But so the barriers are not so much scientific as just, you know, technical, like, and implementation barriers. Who's going to pay for this? How do we staff people and train people to do this? How do we clean these headsets so that we're not, you know, at risk of spreading infection with them? And these are some of the issues. So the idea of the virtualist is a clinician who's trained to do this. And we're actually in the process of creating right now a new 
virtual reality clinical program at Cedar sinai not just a research program, which is what I run, but a true clinical program with a virtualist on call in the hospital and for the outpatient clinics to help really deliver these treatments on the front lines, not as some kind of magical wand that is in place of you know, traditional therapies, but as an evidence-based tool to augment traditional medical therapies. So I think we'll see more and more of this and insurance companies are really paying attention. And when they can start paying for this, and we're seeing some of motion there, some movement, I think we'll see just an explosion in usage, but we still need to get there. Please tell me more about this new clinical program. Is there a timeline and how will this work? Yeah, so we're developing it now. And the real goal is to have a full-time clinician you know, typically this is a psychiatrist. So I think that at least the initial virtualists will be based out of psychiatry because ultimately this is sort of a behavioral intervention in most cases. And psychiatrists are best trained to administer these interventions. And that's how we're focusing this is within our psychiatry team to have a virtualist who is a full-time clinician who administers the therapies on in the hospital and in the outpatient clinic. How exciting. I didn't want to forget to mention that you did some pretty exciting behavior modification with the whole church, Holman mm. Methodist Church that you mentioned in your book. Yeah. Do we have time to go over that quickly? Sure. So the Holman United Methodist Church is a church in the West Adams District of Los Angeles. And the pastor, the former pastor at the time, Pastor Kelvin Sauls, the real visionary who realized that, you know, he was providing all sorts of spiritual nourishment for his parishioners, but the actual food they were serving in the fellowship hall was maybe less than ideal. And he saw a lot of diabetes and high blood pressure amongst his parishioners. And he thought we need to do better. So he worked with us and Bernie Coleman, who is a nursing researcher to develop a VR program that was designed to help teach the parishioners where salt is in the diet, what it does to the body, and how to avoid it. And it was amazing. We actually built the program with the parishioners and with the pastor. And in the program, when they walk into a kitchen and they see different types of food and they find out how much salt is in the meals, and then they fly through their body in virtual reality and watch as the salt damages the heart the kidneys, the brain, and the blood vessels. And then they come back out and they learn about lower salt options. But the most interesting thing to me is they then have sort of a sermon in VR on a beach with their pastor who talks to them about whether or not they're really going to you know, follow the advice and carry out what they've learned here in VR. And we ended up finding that their systolic blood pressure dropped by seven points when combined with other behavioral modifications as part of this three-month treatment program. So it was very exciting. Wow, that certainly is. Let's do a total shameless plug. People are going to want to know more about VRX and about what you're doing now. How do they find out more? Yeah, so VRX is the name of the book. And I named it that because, you know, RX, of course, is a prescription and VRX is uh, the play on words. If VR is a treatment, you know, we need a VR pharmacy. So the book is really, it's about VR, but it's more about mind-body medicine and about what does this teach us about consciousness. And it's a combination of philosophy, psychology, neuroscience, technology, and clinical medicine, and sort of where all those you know, come together. 
So the book is VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. It's, you can find it wherever books are sold. You can go on Amazon and check it out. Basic Books is the publisher. You can go anywhere, Barnes & Noble, and you can find the book. And what if the average person listening right now says, well, how do I experience some of what they've been talking about? How do I have somebody counsel me in VR or behavior modification? What are some of the resources you really like? To yeah, so we've been getting a lot of questions and we're adding a new page to our website, which should be up pretty soon. So our website is virtualmedicine.org or virtualmedicine.health. This is our Cedars-Sinai VR page. And on that page, there's all sorts of resources, including our research. You can watch videos of patients using VR. You can see videos from various lectures on this topic. But we're also adding right now a page of kind of our favorite programs that you can download. And, you know, the easiest way to do this is to buy a VR headset. I don't have any you know, ties to these companies, but the Oculus Quest is one of the best ones that's recently come out. Most people buy it for gaming and entertainment, but you can buy this and then there's an app store and you can download a number of different apps. So we particularly like one called Trip VR, T-R-I-P-P. There's one called Nature Trek. There's one called Meditation VR. And then there's a, another one called Helium, H-E-A-L-I-U-M. And then, of course, Applied VR is a company in Century City. These, all these companies are making therapeutic VR. This isn't for gaming and entertainment, but actually to boost mental health, to help with anxiety, pain, depression, and so on. So we'll be expanding our list of sort of favorite programs on that website soon. So stay tuned. And finally, if people could only get one thing from you and your work in virtual medicine about innovation, creativity, and making a difference, what would you really love them to take away from you? Well, I think it's not just to accept what you've been taught, but to think about what you know and how you can go to the next level and go beyond it. And the work that we do is it lies at the intersection of multiple disciplines. And, you know, if I just used what I learned as a medical doctor, I never would have thought to do this work. But by listening and hearing from computer programmers and, and developers and neuroscientists and philosophers, I came to realize that even with, I have something to say in those fields and they have something to say in my field and innovation creativity occurs when we bring different fields together and have different stakeholders with different visions and perspectives. And, you know, it's sort of hackneyed to say it, but, you know, the, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts when you have these types of people coming together. And that's really how our work has evolved. And that's with that strategy. Dr. Spiegel, thank you for your time today. Thanks for having me. You and I have been listening to Dr. Brennan Spiegel, Director of Health Services Research at Cedars-Sinai Medical Center in Los Angeles and author of VRX, How Virtual Therapeutics Will Revolutionize Medicine. You can find VRX online or at your favorite bookstore or find more information at virtualmedicine.org or virtualmedicine.health. In addition, check out those two websites for upcoming free virtual webinars and resources including videos of patient interviews and the past virtual medicine conference presentations. While you're there, also get a look at the webinar series tab for upcoming virtual events. That's virtualmedicine.org and virtualmedicine.health. The preceding program is for informational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. 
please contact a healthcare professional with any health-related questions. And that concludes this edition of Over Coffee. Thank you for listening. Listen to more Over Coffee podcasts at twomavericks.com. That's two, T-W-O, Mavericks, M-A-V-E-R-I-X. And you can contact us at twomavericks at gmail.com. The music you're hearing is royalty-free production music provided by Pond5 at pond5.com. I'm Dot Cannon. Here's wishing you a cappuccino day.